a podcast. Did your radio show get canceled? Fire, fire, fire. Low down and filthy, but the discipline is on point. Schooled myself, made my own dojo. A cold flow with the whole dose of soul. Maintain composure, even in fury. And hey, it's Pete the Planner talking about what college students need to know prior to college and the parents going into college, what they need to know about money. One of the beefs I hear the most uh, is, uh, boy, I wish they would have taught that in college, or I wish I would have known that before I went to college. There's always the whole rub of like, hey, let's take an 18-year-old and have them borrow tens of thousands of dollars with no job, income, credit history, or means to pay back the money they just borrowed. That seems like a really bad system. Well, it kind of is. But to help us understand how to fix it and help us understand what the, what the real expectations of uh, you should have for your young adult or you as the parent in this relationship, I welcome my good friend and partner with Money Smarts You, Phil Schumann, who is the, okay, Phil, your title always just kills me. It's, I'm going to go with Director of the Office of Financial Literacy at Indiana University. Yeah, that worked. I got it. What I miss? I mean... We don't normally say director of office financial literacy. We just say director of financial literacy, but it's pretty much the same thing. I feel... Okay. Hi, Phil. Hi, Pete. You're joining me from Portland, where you just uh, wrapped up a very successful higher education financial wellness conference that uh, you you co-chair. What's... Before we get into what kids need to know uh, before they get to college and what the parents need to know about the college experience... Uh, I didn't make this year's conference. Uh, uh, millennial producer Nicole went in my absence. Uh, last year, the big talk was about food security. You know, kids that didn't have the means to get food for themselves. Uh, what's the talk this year? What's the big? What's the big topic? I mean, there's there's definitely some of the food insecurity, housing insecurity pieces that are still there because I think a lot of the universities are placing focus on it. Uh, this year, I think there are a couple of things. Number one is just the psychology behind financial making decisions. Because uh, I think we're trying to tap into what makes students tick. Uh, why are they making the decisions that they're making? And how can we be, really, how can we be accommodating the different lifestyles of students coming in and how they approach their finances? Because there's, you know, we know this. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to this. Sure. Um, and then the other piece, too, is... Uh, in, uh, our final keynote was really talking about the retention piece. So what is it about certain financial situations that are causing students not to be able to come back to school next year? And specifically what, in, in this case, it's the University of Kentucky, what they're doing to really focus on uh, making it so that their students, uh, through financial interventions and some other pieces that uh, the campus is putting together, what they're doing to really help improve those retention rates of students because you know, keeping students around, we've talked about this before, like the best thing a student can do, um, you know, if they have student debt, is to graduate and get the credential, not take out a bunch of student debt, get two or three years in, and then drop out, because all of a sudden you've got no credential and a ton of student debt. Yeah, I mean, that is the nightmare scenario. Someone gets student debt, never gets the degree, and then they can't get the opportunities and employment that they could to help pay off the student debt because they lack the credential. The University of Kentucky, their solution didn't have anything to do with bourbon, did it? It 
did not, but I'm sure Bourbon was involved in the decision-making process, Good. just because I'm sure it was a stressful thing. Um, all right, so uh, I guess this is a disclosure. I don't know what I'm about to say, but Phil and I co-created Money Smarts University, um, which, which, Phil, why don't you, you describe it? I don't know. I mean, are we co-creators, co-founders? What do we call this? I think we're every co-thing on this. I, I don't really yeah. know. Co-parenting? I just say we... Yeah, we co-parented this. Yes. We've raised it from from beginning to end, but then we've got some people in your office that have kind of nannied it. Sure, that's true. Really? Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, with Money Smart You, the idea was, you know, there's a lot of research out there that says just-in-time education is the most effective when it comes to getting financial information to stick, uh, especially with college students. So a lot of the a lot of the things we've seen out there about financial literacy for college students has just tried to be one-size-fits-all in terms of here's everything you need to know about budgeting, here's everything you know about savings, et cetera, et cetera. And what we've really found, uh, you know, in your experience by doing your money life and everything you do at your work um, and the things that I've seen in my office is that really we need to be targeting students based on where they are at their, in their academic career. Right. So if they're a first-year student, giving them information for first years, second year, third year, fourth year, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is basically we're providing the information or the financial information to students about what they need to know when they actually need to know it and not just trying to throw a bunch of things at them all at once and hoping some stick. Yeah, because when people say all the time to you and to me and anyone else in the financial world, I wish I would have learned that in college, what they, they, they leave out is I wish I would have learned this specific thing when I needed to know that specific thing in college. What they don't mean is I wish I would have had a encyclopedia of financial information randomly in my college experience. Exactly. Uh, so here's what I want to do today. We're going to attack this from two different angles. Number one, I, we want to talk about what are reasonable things that a, a pre-college or even college student should know about money. Like what, what, like what are those things? So uh, high school grad about to go to college, or how do you want to do it? College students and pre-college students? Is that what we're doing, Phil? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. And then we're going to talk about what a parent should know. Because what, what we have learned, and this should be of no surprise, and if you're listening right now, you already know this too, is that uh, your parents jack up kids too. Big time. Yep. Uh, where do you want to start? You want to start with parents or kids, Phil? Yeah, I mean, you're the you're the expert at this. Let's start with kids. Okay. Oh, by the way, we're not supposed to call them kids. You know, I always Children, get in trouble when students, I call college kids young kids. Young adults. I don't know students, the, right? Those of the twilight age. <laughs> I, I don't really know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not in tune with uh, with the students these days. I'm pretty much sixty years old every single day. I know. All right, so Phil, let's start with students. What are reasonable things that every uh, student about to matriculate in the fall should know about their financial life? Like, what are the basics that, I mean, not nothing fancy, but like, what's a person have to know to survive? I mean, in order to survive, I think just the standard idea of a basic budget. Just right. the idea of, okay, X number of dollars I have to spend uh, during this week, during this month, whatever you want to say here. What does that need to be allocated towards? And really, in, in a college life, it should be kind of simple because, you know, you're not going to have all these different categories. Uh, I mean, you've got your room and board, you've got your tuition, and things like that. But really, those are already covered for before you have to pay for anything else. So it really just boils down to what additional income do you have coming in? 
and how are you going to spread that out over the course of whatever period of time you want to use so that you don't dig yourself into a hole and then also so you don't so you avoid taking out additional student loans to cover in those additional call them personal expenses yeah I, I think a big part of this like in high school and this is of course not for every student I'm speaking in generalities in high school students don't have a lot of expenses like and if they do they're not fixed expenses they're all discretionary and college becomes that period of time when not only do you begin to have your first fixed expenses that you have to deal with in a responsible way on a monthly basis but then your discretionary spending increases significantly because of just the simple concept of freedom you know yep. I yeah. think that's tough I mean yeah Sorry, I, I cut you off there. Keep going. No, well, I, I was listening for you. You, you. Uh, I, I guess where I was going to go is this is also a matter of, uh, for, for the first time, really understanding the source of money you have to deal with your obligations. And it's especially tricky for that age, Phil, because sometimes that source of money, the, the source of money is the way as I see it, it comes from three to four different sources. Number one, which I think is the rarest, is a uh, scholarship or something like that, even to pay for expenses. Number two could be student loans. So you've got a source of money that you can spend in a discretionary way that is money you're going to have to pay back, which is sort of a weird, weird, weird thing. Number three is, of course, parents' assistance, uh, where if that's done the wrong way, as we'll get to here in a little bit, we see a lot of negative impact there. But then the fourth one, and it's what you guys talk to people about all the time in terms of living expenses, is work income, like when getting a part-time job. Yep. Yeah, and I, mean, and I mean, we've talked about this before in the past, where like, for us, what we want to see students do as much as they possibly can is gravitate towards that work income and using whatever work income they make to use it for their personal expenses while in school. Now, granted, you know, it, it may not be the case that some students can do that because some students are so financially strapped when they come at the door that that work income has to go towards their tuition. But certainly in, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like the pyramid of how we want students to fund their lifestyle while at school, it's work income that we want them to prioritize. Um, if they're fortunate enough to come from a well-to-do family where their parents can cover their expenses, that's fine. But I think as we talk about, you know, when we get into the parent conversation a minute ago, there's got to be some level of responsibility on the student's head so that they're learning skills and not just having parents funnel them money whenever they need it. Um, student loans, you know, it's the cliche to say, like, do you really want to be paying for that coffee for the next 10 years? I hate that. But there's, there's an element. Yeah, I hate that, too. But there is an element of truth to it. Yeah, like, we well, don't want to see students using student loans to paying for their personal expenses. Um, and so really, again, it's just like gravitating towards that, uh, gravitating towards that work income piece so that students can really start learning how that income is going to have to make their lifestyle work because once they do graduate from college, that's what their system is going to have to be. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to get student loans or something along those lines when you are graduated. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me in, in this conversation about part-time work because you and I both read the studies that suggest if a student works between what is it the optimal hours or 15 hours a week you can actually see yep. an increase in grade point average uh, the, I get frustrated when people say well my kids job is to go to school and get their degree and so therefore they don't they shouldn't work and, and I think that's cute and in a vacuum it, it could make some sense 
I don't think it teaches much, though. Do you? No, I mean, co- college is very, you know, it, it, we all know this. College is an academic thing. We're supposed to go there, get the credential, and graduate, but it's also about a time of learning how to be an adult, how to navigate the real world, so that when you do graduate, you understand what your responsibilities are and how you can manage your life. Part of that is figuring out how you're going to balance work life into everything else that you need to do. So, you know, even if it's just like a five to ten hour a week job, that is valuable from the skills that you're going to gain, the time management skills that you're really going to put together for yourself. Um, it teaches a lot of responsibility that I think is great to have in college that's going to benefit you after you graduate. Yeah, you know, I think about that. Like, if a kid has to go in and they just have to understand budgeting, they have to understand a source of income and how it funds those things, what are the tough lessons they learn once they get there? I mean, what else do they need to know? It's not like they need to know anything about investing. Do they need just need to understand to don't take on any more debt than necessary? What are sort of those core learnings at the midpoint of a college education? I mean, with with the student loan piece, it's, it's definitely that that you know it becomes about financial efficiency. So you know, in the case of student loans, you might get offered fifty five hundred dollars from the federal government in a year, but just because you're offered that amount of money based on their calculations doesn't mean that you need to take out that much. Right. Uh, in the same way that you can t- you talk about home loans in the exact same way, just because the bank approves you for two hundred fifty thousand dollars or three hundred thousand dollars or whatever doesn't mean you have to spend that much. You know, um, and I know we're going to get here, and I just keep jumping ahead to it, and I can't stop, won't stop. Uh-huh. Uh, um, <laughs> is, uh, culturally, we're at a place where the parents of college students, based on statistics, generally speaking, aren't making great financial decisions. So when those parents influence in any way, shape, or form, via this, do what I say or do what I do, um, these college students, it's decisions like you just said of, I'm being offered 5500 I don't need 5500 yet I'm still going to take the 5500 Those negative decisions can be negatively influenced by parents. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and there's definitely some fault that has to be placed on the parents, but it's also, you know, I would say natural in this, in this case, like the authority figure believes they know what's best and will tell them what to do, despite that it's really coming from a place of lack of knowledge. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, the parents, the adults, whatever you want to say, the older generation's not going to admit that they don't necessarily know everything, or at least they're overconfident that they know everything, which there is tons of research out there that shows especially Americans, uh, tend to be really overconfident when it comes to their financial knowledge. No. Really? I never even knew that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's so we don't know everything. It's why you and I have a job, Phil. That's why. It is. It, it is job security, which is wonderful. There was this trend. I remember at your conference last year, there was this trend where students that come from financially insecure homes were even taking aid money and sending it back home to support their families, thus using borrowed money to maintain the lifestyles of others, I have to assume that that trend has not lessened. Yeah, uh, that that is a huge trend. Um, and that's something that we've got to... It's hard to address, because how do you tell somebody that they can't do something that's benefiting their family? Um, but the problem is, and you know, this is kind of what we've talked about too, is that our brains are wired to think short-term and not really thinking about the long-term benefits. And this is just one instance of that, where students are sending this money back uh, back home 
for the short-term benefit of keeping their family going for another year, but at the same time financially you know, hurting themselves in the long term because it's putting themselves in a position where their ability to get a degree might be compromised because they're edging closer towards the, the point of they won't have the finances to complete their degree. Yeah, and, and I guess speaking of uh, insecurity, we can talk about food insecurity as well. But I guess my eyes were opened uh, in the last couple of years to sort of the plight of the impoverished student, sort of st- uh, systemic poverty, uh, generate multi-generational poverty, and what that experience is like for uh, even a student getting student loans, a kid that you're sitting next to in class, maybe I have the more traditional uh, experience that comes from, from stability, but if they have food insecurity or just financial uh, and fiscal insecurity, uh, Phil, we're seeing massive, massive issues there. Yeah. I mean, it is a really tough issue to solve because those, those students that are coming from impoverished backgrounds that have that food insecurity, that have that housing insecurity, have significantly more challenges on a day-to-day basis to finish their degree. You know, and, yeah, any, I mean, in any one of the, in any one of those students that finishes, I I would hire an instance because it means they have the perseverance and they have the wherewithal to figure out how to maximize their resources uh, to, to get that degree in spite of all the challenges. That I have, they have to, to face. I have to admit, the first time I heard about food insecurity, it's not that I was being uh, apathetic to it or insensitive to it, but it just didn't make sense to me. And now I I knew I knew some people don't have it as well off as others. But the idea that there are college students starving, and we say food insecurity, it's like they don't know where their next meal is coming from, and, and it's not because of poor planning or bad decisions, it's because of their financial reality. Phil, I did not understand that at first, and, and so if, if people listening right now are like, food insecurity sounds like a joke, it sounds like people are just making dumb decisions, no, it has absolutely nothing to do with decisions. No, and, and I mean, that's partially because, and I will say too, I was like that, not maybe not necessarily to the same extent where I just brush it off completely, but it was hard for me to understand because, you know, my college life, I grew up in Bloomington. I went to a four-year private school just outside of Indianapolis. You know, the schools that I'm around tend to be the ones where this is not as much of an issue. It still exists, but it's not nearly to the same extent. So my my experience with these types of things, I didn't you know, hang around community colleges. I didn't hang around some of the, the smaller public colleges around the country that are more in more rural communities where this is a thing. And so, you know, it's one of those things where we don't think something exists unless we actively yeah. see it. Right. But, all, but all the research, all the data shows, no, this really does exist. I, I think the spooky part about it is that you, let's take a student that comes uh, from a, a, a poor background and that there is food insecurity issues. They're going to college to attempt to end this multi-generational impoverished state, yet their effort to, to get over that is making their situation even worse and with this food insecurity issues, putting them in danger and, and making their financial situations almost permanently worse unless they battle through it. Yeah, it is. They are taking one of the biggest risks, I think, that is never talked about. Like it is, it is crazy what they are trying to do in order to improve their lives. And if they, yeah, I mean, if they're unable to succeed, it's you know, it it could set them back. And then the next generation or two generations from now, 
is when is the next time they could actually try it. So, I mean, and, and I think universities are really starting to see this and are starting to understand we've got to do as much as we possibly can to get these students in the door and get them out of out of the door in the right way. We're also seeing an increase in, I guess, what we at times call a non-traditional student. But that is that that's a pejorative too. What are we supposed to call? Is it right? Non-traditional? I feel like we had to stop I mean, saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because what do you like? Non-traditional student tends to be at the bucket, or at least in my opinion, tends to be the bucket everybody puts them in when they're not sure how to label them. Yeah. I think what ends up happening is you know you just have to try and boil it down to what these students are in terms of maybe it's a single parent coming in. You know, that's one type of student. If it's a student that no longer is financially supported by their parents as a result of some sort of falling out. That's another type of student. They just all tend to get lumped into in a bucket as non-traditional. But I think now we're starting to pull back and say, like, well, let's be more specific about who this student actually is. You, you know, I, I think about growing up, even before going to college, and then once I was in college, just consuming the college experience via the media. You know, even movies like Animal House or... What was the one? Revenge of the Nerds. It was always in college. Great, <laughs> great, great series. If you haven't seen it, uh, but I mean, I, I, Adam's College is one of my favorites. <laughs> see, there you go. Even Monster U, Monsters U, right? You get these things of like, <laughs> oh, here's this quaint college experience. It's four years. Everyone, you know. But I guess in today's day and day and age, man, it's just it's just like that for fewer and fewer people. It is. It is a real struggle of the classes, you know? Yeah. It, it really is because, I mean, we, we see this, I see this on a daily basis at our university. There is that kind of class separation among how students interact on a daily basis at the university. Um, we can see the students that are really trying to, that are struggling to get by. We see the students that are, you know, putting forth all of their possible efforts so they can get that degree because their, I mean, their lives basically ride on it. And then you you do have those students that come from the animal house culture, from the the Van Wilder was the big one oh, in yeah, my yeah, day. Yeah. Um, you know, like you have those types of those students too who are doing what they need to do academically to get through, but they have kind of the the cushion, the support behind them where they they're able to take those kind of lifestyle breaks, so to speak. That's a great way to put it because the stakes aren't as high. Like the outcome. Yep is almost predetermined and and I don't know if it's always been this way or just some semblance of maturity has allowed me to see this but for these students with food insecurity or, or come from impoverished backgrounds the stakes couldn't possibly be any higher unless their their life depended on it in a really weird situation because sometimes it actually does like the stakes are just higher now in a college education than they ever were before because of the two Americas that exist, the uh, people making above living wage and the people making uh, at or below living wage. And, and when you think about the early part of someone's career where they're probably making at or below living wage when you compare in the cost to repay their student loans, Phil, this is not a cute topic. This is a terrifying topic that you guys deal with every single day. Yeah, it, it it is crazy how prevalent this has now become in the conversation of college. Um, and I think, you know, and, and just because it's starting now or just because it's happening now does not mean it didn't exist way back when. But I think uh, universities are, rightfully so, like finally shining light on it and really being like, what do we need to do to fix this? 
Um, so, you know, for as, for as negative as the situation is right now, I think there's a lot of positive outlook for this just because there's so much focus being placed on it and people trying to figure out what can be done. Yeah, and before we get to what parents need to know uh, and before we wrap uh, with that, help me understand a hard number. I know that we point to the, you know, the student loan letter at Indiana University, something yeah. that you all did and it had a real dollar impact. Help people understand like what's happening, how, how you're positively affecting the problem. So, yeah, so, I mean, through our financial literacy efforts, and I, I do want to throw a disclaimer out there myself, that I'm not stupid enough to think that just, like, just because we taught students finances and because we sent them out this debt letter uh, have we had the success that we've had. So we, we've decreased student loan borrowing uh, since, from 2000, since 2012. We've decreased borrowing by, uh, I think it's $117 million and... Oh boy, hundred something like hundred thirty million, hundred twelve point eight million dollars. The numbers are becoming fuzzy, but we've had a significant decrease in student loan borrowing um, since we started our program, or since the university really started focusing on addressing affordability uh, as much as possible. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, so and that's fascinating because the costs have been going up to some degree. Yet borrowings come down because people are seeing in this letter, it has their balance. When they go to take out more student loans, it has the balance of what their current student loan obligations are, and that's causing people to pause and think twice about taking on additional loans, which, without splitting hairs, is a good thing. Yeah. I I mean, to us, or at least in my opinion, there's no negative negative recourse behind this. You are giving students the information they need to know about their financial situation. You're not telling them what to do from there. You're just letting them know this is what's going on, and if that causes somebody to be proactive or reactive in the situation, however you want to look at it, fantastic. That's kind of what we want to look at. And, you know, you last year the the Nobel Peace or the Nobel Prize in Economics was given to Richard Thaler, who talked about nudging. That's exactly what this is. You're just doing this non-invasive or non-invasive uh, piece of communication that just lets somebody know. This is what's going on, and we want you to make sure that you understand this and what you can do moving forward. Yeah. Um, the one other thing I'll throw out, too, though, is that there was research that, that was done that the debt letter in of itself is not effective. Hmm. The debt letter, by providing it, does cause them, uh, students to reach out to financial aid students, uh, or finance, sorry, cause them to reach out to financial aid offices more as a result of issuing the debt letter, but it doesn't necessarily affect the debt levels. What does affect the debt levels, they, they kind of concluded, was the combination of a debt letter or debt communication piece plus financial education to support it. Yeah. And so that's the key. You can't just send out a letter and be like, yep, we've got this done. You have to actually provide some support to help them get to that point where they're making good decisions now that they know what their situation is. Do you ever, again, you and I are both in financial education in uh, different, slightly different capacities, but in the same capacity with our, our joint project, do you ever wonder, and this is the, the narcissism that exists within my heart, like how many dollars you prevented someone from borrowing uh, in an unnecessary manner? Do you ever wonder, like, Phil Schumann was responsible from preventing $180,000 of student loan debt, which was probably a lot more than that. But you know what I mean? Do you ever think about that? 
I've never thought about it on an individual level. I have definitely thought about it at a university level. Um, so with everything we've done, like, you know, you take that, that borrowing amount that we've decreased over the years. We have looked at it before, and I can't remember what the number is, like how much we've decreased per student. Um, and it's somewhere, I, I, I'm just going to throw out a number because this is the one that sticks in my head, but it's somewhere like $1,500, $2,000, somewhere in there. And you just think about that. We prevented a student from taking out an additional $1,500, $2,000 in student loans over their academic career. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I love it. All right. What do parents need to know? Very basics. Like, what do, what do parents need to teach their students before they go to college or when they're in college? What are the, what are the primary lessons? And we have a course on this at Money Smarts U that we provide to parents of the students that are served by our content and our curriculum. But succinctly, what, what do parents need to teach kids, Phil? Maybe it's not necessarily what parents need to teach kids, but it's the conversations that parents need to have with their kids. Um, you know, one of the things that we did in, in Money Smart View in, in our high school course, uh, at the end was just the awkward guide to having a financial conversation yes. with your kids. Yes. Um, and, and that's, that's it. Like, it's, it's that, it's that piece that's so important to this. It's, you need to sit down, you need to have that discussion about, okay, mom and dad are going to cover this portion of college. Son or daughter A, son or daughter B, whatever you want to say, they're going to have to cover this portion. And just having that transparency and knowing what each party is going to be responsible for, that's what's going to allow for a better financial situation while a student is in college. It's not necessarily that the student knows how to budget, the student knows how to save, or anything along those lines, although they probably should know those things. But it should be more about, okay, how do we have, what's the separation of roles in paying for college? Uh, because the moment that you don't have that is the moment you have those students that are holding up the sign saying, Mom, Dad, send money, because that's the way they know how to get money for school. Yeah, and, you know, there's weird language around a parent and a student are purchasing an education, but some group of people would say, no, they're investing in an education. But I always think anytime you say investing in something, it always justifies poor decisions when it's actually a purchase. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. And and with parents getting having more student loans, parent plus loans, student loans for adults for parents, uh, at a higher level than, than we've seen, like there's a lot of risk. You're, you're risking retirement. You're you're risking stability as, as a parent ages. And I think Phil, as I have a nine and a six year old, and and and, and your little girl, how old is she now? Five. Four. Four. She's outside my hotel door right now. Oh, you kicked her out of the room for me. Yeah, I did that. I evicted her. Oh That's kind gosh. of funny. I don't. I listen. Uh, so when when we think about like we try to have the conversations with our little people about, Dad, why don't we move to that house or why don't we have this car? And you you try to say, well, we could do that, but we've chosen not to do that for this reason, or we we can't do that. Somehow that conversation disappears with something as important as a college education because guilt or I don't know what else gets in the way and all of a sudden you've got parents and students together making asinine decisions about a college education. Yeah. And I mean, and, and it's, you know, we should say it's a noble thing. Like we hear this all the time that parents want to do whatever they possibly can to get their kids in the schools that they want to go to. But sometimes a, the numbers don't add up. Um, and, and you know, if the numbers don't add up, don't try and push that. 
um, you know, we see we see a lot of students or we see a lot of parents that come in the door saying, "These are our fi- this is our financial situation." Um, and if the numbers don't add up, we got to tell them this is not necessarily the best thing to do. Um, and there was actually research that came out uh, a couple years ago from our I'm going to say good friends at Purdue, sure. um, but just disclaimer, I may not have a job next week if my boss hears that. <laughs> well, so. that's how he is. <laughs> but, but what it said was, with very few exceptions, um, really it doesn't matter necessarily what school you go to. Like The important thing is the, the skills you pick up and the knowledge that you gain from it. Yes, there are a few schools that if you put that on your resume, people are going to open up their eyes and be like, holy cow, this guy's got to be good. Right. But in a lot of cases, it's what you make out of it. And so, you know, don't try and think that this school is going to provide everything your student needs to succeed, and if they go to this school instead, it's not going to happen. If that other school is more financially affordable and provides a lot of the same opportunities, my my eyes would be going towards that one. Um, and I will have this conversation with with Lucy here, uh, you know, once she gets old enough to understand what's going on. But yeah, we want to give her, you know, try and put her in the school that she really wants to go to. But if the numbers don't add up, uh, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna have that happen because we don't want to sacrifice our financial future. We don't want to sacrifice her financial future. Um, you know, we want to do what's best for us in the long run, and part of that's going to have to be potentially not, you know, making a, an exorbitant financial decision when it comes to college. I thought you were going to say at first you were going to have this conversation with her when she got back in the hotel room. And I was like, I don't know, just <laughs> let her in, you know? All right, final I'm, qu- I'm trying to build slowly her financial knowledge about college. Uh, final question for you, and this is important. You were in Portland all week, a great okay. donut city. How many donuts yep. did you eat? How many donuts did you personally consume? Because I know you're a donut man. This past week. So, so I think that quest. I can answer part of that question, but I think we need Nicole on this too to kind of right. help Nicole, out. Nicole, pop on a mic there. Nicole yeah. uh, went out to Portland on our behalf. Nicole, how many donuts? Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. Did you well, and Don have the challenge? That's why <gasps> I've I've been invited to chime in. Okay, what happened, Nicole? So I have a lovely two and a half minute video. Oh God, watching our dear, our dear, dear friend Phil Schumann eat a donut that weighs about as much as his four-year-old, as much as he could in about two minutes. It's glorious. I may have to include it within the blog post. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to see this. And you kept it down, my friend, right? Yeah, he did like a champ. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Kept it down. I I will say, not going to try and embarrass him. I won't give give out his name. But I am 4-0 in these eating challenges now. Yeah, it's always nice to beat your boss in eating challenges. Good job, Phil. If, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do something, that's gonna be it. But I will say to answer your question too. So aside from the wagon wheel size donut, uh-huh. uh, I had I think I had three other donuts, and I still bad. got. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm getting ready to go out and meet all my high school friends or my my closest high school friends out on the Oregon coast here soon. I may have grabbed the what's remaining of those wagon wheel donuts. Maybe taking those out to the coast as well as a few others. So more donuts will be had over the course of the next few days. So that's something. Excellent. Well, keep up the good work. And by the good work, I mean eating donuts. And uh, season three of uh, Money Smarts You coming soon uh, to all of the students that uh, with 114, 140,000 students at IU and other places across the country so whatever the math is i'm bad with numbers phil schumann director uh financial literacy 
uh, Indiana University. Thanks, buddy. No problem, man. Hey, hang on the phone. When we hang up with this uh, interview here, uh, I want to talk to you some more about your donuts. So stand, stick with us. And for you, the listener, we're done with you. Thanks for listening. Uh, uh, catch more of the show at keepitplanner.com and the podcast. And boy, do we have a surprise return for you here on this podcast. You've been asking for it. More details on that later. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Pete the Planner. This is for information purposes only. Do not necessarily financial planning device. Consult a financial divisor. Hi, I'm internet podcaster Peter Dunn. You may know me as Pete the Planner. You hear me on the radio and on your podcasting device, but did you know you can also see me? on YouTube. That's right. We have a YouTube channel and we call it PeteThePlanner.tv. We ask you to subscribe so you can catch great shows like Pete's Eats and this here podcast with drawings. But the drawings are made with a video camera. Subscribe today. Took me home, filled by the ink and the megabytes and the hypertext transfer protocol. Stronger than the Skynet and the Terminator. I push faders into warp speed, glide with ease, creating a breeze. They call a black hole, event horizon, no rear view concerns. This I adjourn, adjourn. beats I burn, I burn, I burn, I burn, This I adjourn, adjourn. beats I burn, I burn, I burn. Salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a far away land. I am the sole controller. Put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, trying can restore your health. I bring you greetings. Uh, salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it?